I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. In this special edition, we get a first-hand report from Israel as it responds to vicious terrorist attacks. And we revisit a book that examines persecution of Christians in Muslim lands. Join us, sit back, and enjoy some free expression. Jonathan Feldstein has been with us before. He heads an organization called the Genesis 123 Foundation, which works to spread information about Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, and to strengthen ties between Jews and Christians. Jonathan lives south of Jerusalem, not far from the Gaza border. His town has been on alert for the past few days while horrendous events have unfolded throughout the country. Jonathan, thanks for taking time in this incredibly stressful period to speak with us. It is a delight, and I'm grateful, Bill. It's always good to talk to you, and and yes, it is. It's an incredibly stressful period, you're right. If you would, please give us a little thumbnail on how this all began for you and your family, and also describe where things stand now. Yeah, so sure. First, I just want to um, apologize. I'm a little distracted because as we're speaking, there are barrages of rockets being launched. I don't see it, except I have an app on my phone that makes an auto an audible alarm every time they're being launched. So I'm hearing it in my ear as I'm hearing our conversation. Yeah, so I was waking up Saturday morning quite startling. You know, sometimes we have an alarm clock with a snooze button, and we annoyed that the alarm wakes us and hits snooze once or twice. So this was an alarm that I couldn't avoid. We ended up uh, having an uh, air raid siren about 50 yards behind my bedroom window where I live at about 9 o'clock. I don't usually sleep that late, but thank goodness I was able to oversleep for some rest I I needed to catch up on because the last few days have been less sleep, uh, to put it nicely. And what happened, we we didn't know what was going on then because as Orthodox Jews, we're we're completely offline. We're not using our phones or computers or, or, or radios or TVs. And we just didn't know what was going on but based on where we live, which is about 40 miles to the east of the Gaza as the crow flies, and about 45 to 50 miles from the closest place that they would even be firing the rockets at us, it's not unusual, it's not frequent, but it's not impossible that rockets are fired this far. And typically when they're fired here, it means they're also fired to Jerusalem, um, which is just to, to 12, 15 kilometers to the north of where we live. And we spent most of that rest of that morning in and out of the bomb shelter. Um, it's standard construction here that you have bomb shelters attached to or part of your home. And we spent collectively probably the better part of 45 minutes in the bomb shelter that day, in and out, in and out, in and out. We didn't know what was going on until, but well, we knew it was bad. If rockets came here, and then we started seeing a lot of vehicles, which is also an unusual thing on a Sabbath, because typically people are not out in their cars. And we saw that the, the drivers were young men in uniform. So we knew something was going on. We didn't know what, and because it did not affect our lives immediately, meaning it was not life-threatening, we elected to keep our phones off and TV off. And we speculated. And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, by, by the way, as I'm talking, these sirens keep going off in my ear. You can't hear it, but it's a little unnerving. 
at about four o'clock in the afternoon, my 25-year-old son came in. He was just married three months ago, and he said he came in to get into his uniform, which he's been here. They've not moved yet into their own place, and so his uniform and equipment are all here in our house. And it was in 10 minutes. He was in uniform, all his equipment packed in a big backpack. We shoved a bunch of food in there so he would have it, not knowing where he was going over how long. And he told us more or less about the attack that took place at the border with the Palestinian terrorists breaking down the border. We don't know how many thousands came in, but it's thousands because we know how many bodies we found and we know that they, many of them got back. And we believe that there's still probably terrorists inside Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu made a, a very forceful statement, and that has been followed up with a general mobilization. Where are we now? Have Israeli troops actually entered Gaza? We're seeing pictures of a lot of destruction from the air, but what's happening on the ground, do you know? So it's a good question. I have been offline a little bit just trying to do my work and get the message out and an appeal for an emergency campaign that we're running for needs that are taking place in front of us. I'm not aware that we've had ground troops go in. I'm not clear of that at all based on what my son not, not that my son is necessarily going to be the first one in, but I don't think we're there yet. I think it may be inevitable, inevitability. And I think what we're seeing in Israel now, based on, based on the carnage, we're, as of when we're speaking, over 1,200 Israelis have been killed. Mm-hmm. And most of those, and I say, I'm using the words very precisely, most of those were executed in cold blood. They were civilians. The Hamas terrorists went door to door. They, they not only came into Israeli communities, they overtook Israeli communities, and they went door-to-door executing people in their homes, in front of their relatives. Yesterday's news was that 40 babies' bodies were found, some with their heads chopped off, which I apologize, the the imagery is vulgar, but that's the reality. So there is a great national consensus that that this is, they've crossed that line. Hamas can never, ever be allowed to have the power that they have, many people are saying we should, go in, we should go in and take out Hamas. The other complicating factor, of course, is that all of these war crimes coming in, attacking civilians, murdering civilians, and, 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 and raping and kidnapping people, they've kidnapped over 100 Israeli citizens and smuggled them back to Gaza. And so we can't just go in without risking the lives of those who are kidnapped. And again, as of when we're speaking, while I'm not aware of ground troops going in and rockets are continuing to fly because I hear it, we also don't even have a full list of the names of the hostages who've been taken. But we know that there were children, little children, because we've seen their videos mocking and, and abusing the children. And we know there are elderly, uh, elderly women because we've seen the terrorist videos on that. Now, uh, the Israeli uh, uh, Defense Force operates under very strict guidelines for rules of engagement. This has to tie their hands considerably. Uh, Yes, it does. And there have been tempered and less tempered calls that we should, if not take the gloves off, at least take a glove off. Hmm. And that's coming from, I would say, three perspectives. One is anger. Um, we're human beings, we've been violated, and there's a sense of, of um, punishing them. 
second is that in order to have, in order to prevent that something like this ever happens again, last night I was watching TV and we heard something echoed that Gaza, the, 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 the Israeli residents of the Gaza border communities can't go back to the communities as is unless and until Hamas and all the terrorist infrastructure in Gaza is completely uprooted. And they were using the notion, the, the, the um, metaphor of having Switzerland as a peaceful next-door neighbor, that that's what needs to happen. Hmm. And the third reason is a restoration of deterrence, because unfortunately, it's not a one-time thing. Everything in international politics, in diplomacy, and even in terror there are a lot of dots that are connected. In the last couple of years, we've seen policies toward Iran and the Taliban and Afghanistan and to the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and, and other terrorists that empower them, that embolden them. And there's a sense right now that if we don't restore a sense of deterrence, Hezbollah on the northern border in Lebanon, which is a better armed and no less evil terrorist, Islamic terrorist organization, is licking its chops to start unleashing some of the estimated 150,000 rockets that they have aimed at us. And Iran, of course, which does not hide the fact that it's trying to get nuclear weapons to destroy us. That deterrence must be restored. And therefore, going to your question, kind of a long answer, it may involve a little more gloves off the hands um, in terms of how we do that. And I say it with all sincerity, sadly, more civilian casualties on the side of the Palestinian Arabs. Uh, yeah, there's no question. I mean, this, this is going to be a human tragedy of tremendous proportion. <laughs> about the timing, we've been hearing hopeful murmurings about some sort of rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia an extension of the Abraham Accords. Do you think that this was done at this particular moment in order to disrupt any progress toward that? Uh, Yes, 100%. And in all of the interviews that I've done this week, and there have been so many that I've lost count, I will give you credit, Bill, for that being one of the most important and insightful questions. There's no question at any time that there is discussion of normalization of relationships with Israel in the Arab world, or peace, or even, uh, or even when we've had previous uh, military conflicts with the terrorists, before we sign a, a truce, a, a, a ceasefire, they unleash a barrage of rockets that I'm like, like what I'm hearing now that are still going on. Every minute that we've we've been speaking, rockets have been fired for the duration of this conversation, and they do that in order to try and inflict as much damage to the peace process as possible. But what's also so important about the Saudis is that the Saudis, as as American warships are coming to the eastern Mediterranean, the Saudis are looking very carefully Hmm. at what the American administration does, because part of any deal between Israel and the Saudis will also involve certain American security guarantees. And America, frankly, has not been a real reliable ally to much of the Arab and Middle East world in the last couple of years. If the Saudis see the Americans abdicating the opportunity and indeed the obligation to do something now, the Saudis may just say, forget it, it's not worth our while, we'll have a back-channel relationship with Israel, 
and we will make relationships with China and Russia and anyone else that we need to in order to guarantee our safety and well-being because their Iranian threat is very similar to our Iranian threat. Well, yeah, there, there's no question that the Saudis are themselves divided. Even in the royal family, there are different factions and, and different sympathies. You made a quick mention of China, and I think that that's an aspect that hasn't been explored much, at least in the news in this country. The Chinese do have a working relationship with Iran. Do you think that they have helped to engineer any of this? Excellent question. I'm not, I'm not sophisticated enough to know. I know that China and Iran and Russia, um, I would potentially throw Turkey in there, are all nefarious players that, we, that really shouldn't be trusted. And I do know the reason I mentioned China is because China was the broker of some sort of deal between the Saudis and the Iranians to have a restoration of some kind of diplomatic or political relationship. And that was a big coup, another failure for the U.S., and a very big coup for the Chinese, albeit that it seems that the Saudis in parallel have been and continue to maintain very active direct and indirect conversations with Israel and with the U.S. on creating uh, normal relations between our countries. What's the mood generally? I know outrage, of course, is the first reaction, but you've had a couple of days to kind of digest that. How are people holding up? How are they feeling? Well, we're not getting adjusted to it, honestly, Bill, because every day it's something new and horrific. Yesterday was the re revelation that 40 babies were, were murdered and, right. and, and some of their heads were chopped off. And I, I know we're speaking to a pro-life crowd, whether, whether in the womb or whether uh, nine months post-birth or 10 months or a year, that is a vulgar crime that took place here against innocent babies. We also saw the day before the, the death count went from 400 to 600 in an hour when 240 or 250 bodies were discovered on the field where a music festival had taken place, and these young men and women were gunned down. And every day we're seeing and hearing this. So we're not... We're not I think everyone's coping very differently. I'm coping by keeping myself really busy and having conversations like this and sending out appeals for the Genesis 123 Foundation emergency campaign to try and help make a difference because I can't get on a plane and go there and, and, and be in person. But there's a lot of trauma. Uh, my, I'll tell you this, for you're the first person I'm telling outside of my family. Three hours ago, my daughter-in-law, my, my newlywed son's wife, was sitting at the uh, barrier at the um, going toward Jerusalem. There's a, a, a checkpoint going into Jerusalem from where we live, again, very close by. And at some point, I don't know the story yet because I've been on doing multiple interviews, two female soldiers got out of the car immediately in front of her yelling, terrorist, terrorist, and the security there gunned down the terrorist who had been in the car. I don't know if the terrorist was a driver or a passenger that maybe they picked up. I'm not really sure. And my daughter-in-law was in the right behind that. So we're, we're dealing with trauma compounded by trauma compounded by trauma, and everyone is dealing with it or not in the best way that we can. But it's not easy. It's not easy on any level. I will say this lastly uh, on that point. There's a tremendous sense of volunteerism here. Uh, with 300, uh, This is an important number. 300,000 soldiers were called up into reserves. 360,000 showed up for reserves. And more are trying to get back to Israel. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a clear sense of right and wrong 
on this, and soldiers want to come back and defend our country. And that's uplifting. But as a result of that, we have men and women who are not in their places of work, and other Israelis, and I include that with most of my kids and my wife, who've been volunteering hmm. in hospitals, in the local grocery store. My, two of my daughters, this is not volunteering, but two of my daughters have been to four funerals in the last two days of, of soldiers who were killed. Um, we just had one here from, from our community. But there's a great sense of volunteerism. My son, who's the paratrooper, who is stationed somewhere that I won't say, is close enough to a community that when they arrived after a long day yesterday, people who he didn't know opened their homes for him to shower and all the other troops to shower. And there were people who took their dirty clothing and washed them and folded them and brought them back. That's so we have this tremendous dichotomy of anger, fear, of concern, of grief, and tremendous strength and unity all rolled into one. Well, I know you've been scrambling to put together some kind of an emergency fund. If people wish to contribute to this or to find out more about the work of the Genesis 123 Foundation, where can they go? Yeah, thank you for that, Bill. That's important, and I appreciate it. Uh, the website is genesis123.co to be in touch with me or to get information generally about what we do. But we set up a dedicated link, which is love.genesis123.co, love.genesis123.co. All the money that comes in there is going to our emergency fund, and I'm, we're also giving people the opportunity that when they donate, they can send prayers and words of encouragement, which we, we take the responsibility to print and distribute widely. And we are funding three primary areas right now. There are needs for soldiers. In some places, they're overfed like my son, but they don't have ceramic bulletproof vests. So we're talking right now about getting a bunch of bulletproof vests and other equipment, um, even something as mundane as portable batteries for their phones so that they can stay in touch with their family whenever they have that moment. Uh, We are providing civilian security, nothing lethal, nothing military, to communities on the outlying areas so that first responders can be able to respond to anything um, that might come up tomorrow, next next week, next month, or two years from now. Um, We've done that in the past. It's very important and very successful. And the third is trauma relief for orphans and at-risk youth, specifically who live in the what we call the Gaza border, the Gaza belt area. Um, We also have a relationship with a facility there that works with these kids. I've been very, very nervous because since Sunday, they haven't responded to me. I don't know what's going on, and it's terribly frightening. And we know that these kids are coming from homes that are not safe because their parents don't have the capabilities and they're in a community that's generally tenuous and now a country that's under siege. And we just need to love on them and and give them whatever support that we can. So those are the three main things. And and every called from California the other day, apologizing that she was only able to donate three dollars and 44 cents. I'm not sure how she got to $3.44, but I told her, first of all, not to apologize because every dollar matters. And second of all, what a lovely thing, because it gave me, gave me the opportunity among the hundreds of people who've donated so far just to say thank you personally. So anyone who can participate and join us, um, if I don't get to thank you personally, thank you. So it's, it's genesis123.co is the website, and the special link for our emergency campaign is love.genesis123.co. 
Jonathan Feldstein, the Genesis One Two Three Foundation. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking time to to share this information. Keep your head down. Protect your family. God bless. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And the prayers are tremendously meaningful and comforting. This assault on the Jewish state is part of an ongoing jihad against non-Muslims being carried out by Islamist radicals around the world. We looked at another aspect of that aggression a few months ago. Casey Chalk is a journalist and author who has looked deeply into the lives of Christians residing in one of the most hostile environments imaginable for followers of Jesus, the countries where Islam dominates. His book, The Persecuted, from Sophia Institute Press, tells true stories of these folks' experiences, their struggles, and their courage. Casey, thanks very much for speaking with us. Bill, thank you so much for having me on the program. How did you get interested in this, and what did it take to put this book together? Well, the persecution of Christians has always been close to my heart. It was something that my mother and father also cared about very deeply. But the immediate impetus for the persecuted stems from three years that my wife and I spent in Bangkok, Thailand, where we became intimately familiar with a number of families, uh, asylum seekers, primarily from Pakistan, Christians who had fled persecution in their native country of Pakistan. What time period are we talking about here? I was in Thailand from 2014 to 17, and the persecuted, uh, the book itself covers that entire period, but also provides some historical context from Pakistan going back all the way to the 1970s, including some of the time past our three years in Thailand uh, to cover what's happened to the families that we got to know. We hear a lot of conflicting interpretations of Muslim attitudes. Uh, Some people will say that Muslims respect Christians as fellow peoples of the book. Others will say that uh, for Christians living in Muslim countries, it's basically hell on earth. Uh, what what are the facts? Well, it very much depends on which Muslim country you are in. Uh, some places, like Pakistan, I don't know if I'd characterize it as hell on earth, but it certainly is not very pleasant. Christians in Pakistan and a lot of other countries in the Muslim world where they're allowed to exist, it should be noted that there are some countries where Christianity is more or less outlawed and not really permitted, and there are no legal churches, for example, in Saudi Arabia. But Pakistan does have a sizable Christian minority population that's very historic. It's been there for centuries. But they basically operate as second-class citizens, perhaps comparable to the untouchables in India, where they do not have access to a lot of professions. Uh, They live more or less in ghettos, and they're constantly harassed and antagonized, particularly by uh, Muslim extremists, of which there are many in Pakistan and uh, a lot of the other countries in the Middle East. I should also mention that there's quite a bit of state-sanctioned persecution or marginalization of Christians in a lot of these Muslim countries. It's very difficult for them to renovate churches, let alone build new ones. Uh, In many of them, proselytization is against the law. It's very difficult for them to live their faith in in ways that we would recognize, you know, much more freely in in the West. Are Christians able to live in a, with, with a measure of contentment? Do they get along with their neighbors? Uh, this harassment that may be official or, or casual, is it endurable, or, or do we have people who would give anything to get away? 
I think in places like Pakistan, most Christians, if they could leave, they would. That's not to say that there aren't plenty examples of Muslims uh, in their communities who do seek to you know, have friendship with them and even protect them. One of the families that I discuss in my book, The Persecuted, uh, the D'Souza's, one of the times that uh, Michael D'Souza, the, the father of the family, was uh, being physically assaulted and antagonized but by extremist mullahs, it was actually a Muslim neighbor who more or less interjected in that conflict and promised that he would be sure to uh, instruct my friend Michael D'Souza in uh, the truths of Islam. But that was more or less just to try to get the mullahs to leave them alone. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it is a very precarious situation for many of these Christians. What about the, the Muslims of good intention who might wish to be charitable to their Christian neighbors? Uh, do they run any risks by coming into contact with Christians? Oh, they certainly do, um, especially if they're viewed as, um, you know, being uh, supportive of religious freedom. There was actually a very prominent case in Pakistan of a senior Pakistani government official several years ago who was outspoken in his criticism of religious extremism, Islamic extremism, and uh, in advocating for religious liberty, and he was actually killed by Muslim extremists. The book is The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands by Casey Chalk. It's from Sophia Institute Press. I assume that it's in general distribution and you can find it through the usual channels? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I always like to point people to Sophia Institute's website so you can buy it directly from the publisher, which is a great Catholic institution, but surely it's also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, other uh, vendors. Right, that's sophiainstitute.com. Casey, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, These are difficult times that we're living in and seem to be becoming more difficult from day to day, and maybe your book has uh, some warnings that we should heed uh, to kind of look ahead and prepare for whatever lies there. Thank you so much for uh, having me on your program, Bill. It was a pleasure, and uh, hopefully we'll get to do it again. If you've been listening to these shows online but would like to hear them on the radio, tell your local Catholic station. Free Expression with Bill Castle is available for broadcast free of charge. Ask your Catholic station to contact us by email, billcastle at sbcglobal.net. That's B-I-L-L. K-A-S-S-E-L, all one word, Castle at sbcglobal.net. And don't forget to support your local station. In this time of censorship and so-called cancel culture, Catholic radio is becoming increasingly important as an alternative media source. Our programming is based on the Word of God and the teaching of His Church, and we bring you the factual, truthful information you aren't getting from the mainstream media. Support Catholic Radio. Your generosity keeps Catholic outlets on the air, and donations to broadcast ministries can be tax-deductible. Urge your friends and relatives to tune in as well. And please, let me know what you think about these shows, Tell me what books you're reading, what media you follow, what sort of music communicates with your soul. I'd love your suggestions on topics we might explore that touch the lives of Catholics today, important ideas we might discuss, interesting people we might speak with. Email me with your thoughts, billcastle at sbcglobal.net. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression. 
Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and Company Publications, where good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curris provided technical assistance, theme, and incidental music are by Dan Adam. The program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.